Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Linux Downtime. I'm Joe. I'm Martin. I'm Hayden. I'm Gary. Good to talk to you all again and welcome back, Gary. It's been a while since we spoke. Yeah, it's been a bit. So for people who don't remember you, uh, you are the lead dev of the Pigeon messaging application. Correct. And you're also not the world's biggest fan of Microsoft and you favor GPL and copyleft, right? Uh, that would be accurate, yes. Yeah, okay. Are you here to restore balance to the force, Gary? Uh, I don't know about that per se, but maybe a little. <laughs> yeah, well, you never know. We'll see. So today, we're going to talk about sustainability in open source. There is clearly a problem of sustainability. And so the question is, can we work out some strategies to try and solve that problem? So I think before we talk about solutions, I think we need to define the problems. I think there are multiple issues with sustainability in open source, and I'd be interested to know what each of you identify as potential issues. I take issue with this premise. I think there's not necessarily an issue with sustainability across all open source, because there are many open source projects that are incredibly well-funded and well-staffed and have a sustainability plan. I think what we're talking about, though, is the libraries and dependencies that many of those projects depend on and how we fund individual projects, individual libraries, individual dependencies that are maintained by volunteers. So I can see that... Through this conversation, Hayden and I are going to be agreeing and disagreeing with one another in equal measure. So I, I agree with some of what you've just said. I would, I think I would take issue with what you said about many open source projects are well funded. I think there are few open source projects that are well funded, have a sustainability plan, have corporate responsible backers and all of that good stuff and are in a good place. But I think they are the exception, not the rule. And I would also say that I agree with what you've just said about how dependency on open source blossoms. Let's take the stereotypical example of I'm writing a node application and I use some top level framework, you know, one of the popular JavaScript frameworks. If I was looking to be a corporate entity or an independently wealthy organization or developer or team of developers to fund like that framework, I think that is a mistake that's being made repeatedly because when you import that framework, there is probably upwards of 50 other projects that you're now dependent upon, which at a surface level you don't see. And it's those developers that are propping up the giants where the sustainability problem really exists. There seems to be focus on the libraries and from a developer point of view. But don't forget that there's also open source software that is end user specific, right? This would be your Pigeon, your Firefox, VS Code, OBS, etc. Now, some of those do have good funding models, but some of us don't. Like Pigeon, it's impossible for us to get corporate funding because people don't like what we do, right? We, we tear down walled gardens, so nobody's going to sponsor us to tear down their walls. 
So we have libraries and dependencies maintained by volunteers that get sucked up into these big projects, some of which then get big corporate sponsorships where none of that funding gets down to those library maintainers. We have independent end-user applications like Pigeon and other projects that need funding. And when it comes to defining sustainability, I think it's a real challenge because we face developer burnout. We face backlogs of issues, of security vulnerabilities. We face a whole host of issues. And it's possible that money by itself won't even fix it. That was my question. Yeah. Surely if you throw enough money at it, but then manage that money, I guess, is the the next step. You need to have a structure in place to distribute that money and manage the spending of it. That's the simple answer to this, isn't it? Like, throw enough money at it, manage that money properly, problem solved. I disagree with you throwing in simple into that <laughs> into that sentence well it was i did do quote marks but no one saw that <laughs> but i i do agree that it's it's not about funding per se i mean having money is obviously a good place to be but if you have a load of money land on your doorstep it's then a matter of how is that money put to good use i think the uk economy has tens of billions of dollars attributed to GDP through open source endeavors every year. So the numbers vary year to year, but it's, you know, considerable amounts of money in global economic terms. But if we look at someone like the Open Collective, they pull in maybe half a million dollars a year for all of the projects that they support. So there is a disparity there of many orders of magnitude in terms of financial sponsorship. And, you know, if we're going to get into talking about how do we fix this, I think there's some sort of social and corporate responsibility (laughs) discussion to be had there. But as you say, Joe, if you are an independent developer who's just hit on a great idea for a micro framework or a framework which suddenly explodes in popularity. And then one day that is the, the next log4j and log4j also fits itself into the category of a not well sustained project. Just having a load of money thrown at you when you've got the, the world's legal representation from various organizations insisting that you deal with this in 36 hours, having never contributed to your project in any meaningful way, financially or with code, just having a bunch of money doesn't help, actually. It's a burden. While money does help make a certain amount of problems go away, it also doesn't help with the bigger issue of there's just too much work to do. Like maybe you have enough money that you can hire somebody to help, but I mean, that's a typical new hire setup where they've got to, you know, get familiar with the code base, figure out how things are done and do all that. So the money can help, but like, there's just, there's so much more to the project than money. We touched a little bit on the burnout before and like people go like, oh yeah, so you develop for Pigeon. I'm like, yeah. And I also do the social media support, DevOps announcements, releases, like I I do everything. And at the end of the day, like you're, you're never going to be able to hire somebody to do all of that 
at a salary that you're going to be able to afford, even if you're getting donations or you're well-funded to do all of that. You're, you're going to have to, do, you know, spread that out over a number of people and that kind of stuff. And also going back to the Open Collective, there are a number of high-profile projects that are well-funded through the Open Collective that could sustain a team of maybe half a dozen developers. But that quickly drops off to could maybe only pay for a developer, but the long tail of projects um, under the Open Collective sponsorship are really collecting coffee money for projects. You know, it's nothing significant. You know, if, if, if it's a passion project and your passion is to have a good cup of coffee a week, then you're golden. But if you're actually looking at, you know, sustaining an income and making this a full-time endeavor, then it's woefully inadequate in the majority of cases. But if a rich benefactor came to you, Gary, and said, right, here is $3 million a year, and that's going to allow you to hire a bunch of people, a social media person, a couple of developers maybe, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that only goes so far, right? And then you'd have a team, and then you wouldn't be a developer anymore. You'd be a manager at that point, and you might not necessarily be any good at being a manager. I suppose you sort of have to to run an open source project, but not all developers are good managers. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. The other kind of hidden cost we're kind of ignoring right now is, so Pigeon is going to turn 24 years old this year. That's ancient in open source terms, right? OSI just turned 25, I think, right? Something like that. And over those 24 years, we have accumulated a severe amount of tech debt. So even right now, if I brought in five new developers, they're going to continue doing what I'm doing, which is massaging the code base and paying back that tech debt. That's one of our biggest things right now, because one of the reasons we haven't been able to maintain new contributors is there's too much tech debt. You can't follow the code. It doesn't make sense. Things aren't named coherently. They're all over the place and stuff like that. So again, that's one of those hidden costs where like money's great, but it doesn't fix that problem. It would never happen that somebody rocks up with three million a year, but let's just stay in fantasy land for a moment. <laughs> if Gary doesn't want to be a manager, I tell you what, for three million a year, you can totally hire a product manager and become, you know, stay as a, a happy developer and let somebody else deal with all of that stuff. Yeah, I suppose. Maybe that was the wrong way to put it. I suppose if you developed a business model that brought in more and more revenue, it's, it doesn't happen like that, does it? You don't just suddenly get three million. Yeah. You build up the the donation model or partnerships with companies or whatever and you gradually build up your revenue and build up the staff around you and i think that that might be a big problem for some projects where whoever's leading that project is just suddenly one day wakes up and realizes that they're a manager and not a developer anymore yeah that's true and also i think you're starting to touch into a different sort of economic dynamic here which is where there are organizations who Uh, other organizations can pay to fund who will provide them with some security and safeguards around the open source software that they're using. So they will ensure that the open source that you're consuming within your organization is secure, has been licensed, audited, and all the rest of it. And you can pay those companies a pretty penny, but almost none of it, in many cases, absolutely none of it will make its way back to the upstream projects themselves. And it's rare to find organizations that either 
directly profit share or contribute directly in a meaningful way to the projects that they back, support and use. So, you know, there's, there's another thing. And we, we, we see, we've seen the expansion of that idea, certainly within sort of the, um, cloud service providers. And, you know, Amazon is still trying to repair to this day, you know, their reputation because of the way they basically forked and re-implemented popular protocols of open source projects and destroyed the funding model for effectively the upstream creators. We've mentioned burnout a couple of times. I think that is a huge problem. And I think that a huge part of that problem stems from the fact that open source is an inherently global idea. And it crosses time zones, it crosses cultures, it crosses different national holidays and ideas of weekends and and everything. And so there is this sort of expectation almost of an open source project and, and Gary, I would assume you have experienced this, that you are just always on call and you are expected to always be online and basically never take a break from it. Yes and no. It's gotten better over the years, but I think part of that is due to Pigeon's declining popularity because it hasn't done much in a while, right? We've been focusing on the next major version, which will be desirable again. But I mean, we're, we're an old project, right? So we still have an IRC channel, right? And people, when you come to an IRC channel are typically patient. Yeah. <laughs> Not always, but typically. Mm. But like I have, like I mentioned earlier, I do the DevOps for all of our stuff too. So like I have uh, a status page set up that automatically pings me when something goes down. But yeah, you're right. Like what if, if I go to a family function or something like that, I always have my laptop with me. I don't necessarily open it, but I always have it just in case something goes wrong. And even if you don't open it, that's still on your mind. That's still, you haven't been able to fully switch off, right? Well, yeah, but the, the, it's not always a burden for me because the pigeon is very, very much a passion project for me. Having spent 19 years of my life on it, it it's very much a passion project at this point. People always ask me, do I ever get burned out on it? And I'm like, honestly, no, there's so much to do and so many different things that when I get frustrated with one part of it, I just go work on something else, even if that includes ignoring users for a while. So like there'll be days where I just don't look at our support mailing list because it's like, I don't want to deal with this right now. So it's like, I'll go work on code and then I'll go through issues then back to code, then support. And it just, you know, you got to kind of find that balance kind of thing. Mm. What about you, Martin? Have you experienced that with uh, the Ubuntu Mate project? People's expectations that you're just always around to fix things? Yes. I mean, generally speaking, I would say that most people who are familiar with the open source community and open source projects and operating systems are respectful of the time and effort that contributors put into those projects and don't make unreasonable demands upon those maintainers yeah and that's the majority who are quiet but then or people who are new to the community mm. who are maybe a bit self-entitled you know the the number of direct messages i get on a daily basis via twitter or discord or when i was on facebook and telegram who people just think that you will suddenly solve all of their problems immediately and 
I'm so tempted sometimes to tell them what my hourly rate is <laughs> and where to send the invoice <laughs> because there are some days, as Gary was saying, you just don't want to deal with it. And when you get those requests on those days when you're not in the mood, it's like, ah, oh, you know, I've seen other open source maintainers and contributors put out public announcements. Don't DM me, you know, about stuff. I don't want to hear it. I've never done that. I suppose this is the closest I'm coming to it now. Yeah. I would never say don't DM me because it could be a potential new contributor who's asking a question about how to get involved, but it it, it can be frustrating sometimes. But what I would say to Gary is it's your passion project. And that's great. I've got passion projects too. You know, I, I understand and identify with where you're coming from, from this, but I don't think either of us would claim the projects that we work on are critical infrastructure. And if your passion project does become a sort of a pillar of the open source ecosystem that props up contemporary software development, and there is a security problem with it, we're citing first world problems of having somebody, please, please fix my desktop environment. Please fix my messaging client as opposed to please fix the security vulnerability that is now trending globally. And we've identified that you're the person that can fix it. And there are examples of that happening where the maintainers of those projects have just noped out, closed their laptops, disconnected, gone offline for a week and are just like, nope, I'm not dealing with this. And the whole world is in meltdown <laughs> over the fact that there is some significant vulnerability in a critical piece of software they're using, and they don't know what to do about it. That's a different sustainability problem. I have a couple solutions to the sustainability problem that I want to put out there and get feedback from the panel on. The first one is the Open Collective GitHub sponsorship model. Does it scale? No. I would also say no. <laughs> if it's scaled, it would already be a solution, and it's not. All right. Within large enterprise organizations, I have seen a trend towards contributing to the smaller projects, open source, usually committees, panels, funds put together by companies. I won't name any specific companies. Wise. But there are a wide range of companies that do do this. What do we think about this as an approach? Again, recognizing money by itself is not a panacea, but having the enterprise organizations commit funds to these smaller projects that they know they rely on. Corporate responsibility should dictate that if you're getting value from some technology in the products and services that you're delivering, it is kind of a requirement that you help sustain those technologies because otherwise you're accruing technical debt one day one of those or many of those projects are going to go away and you're going to be carrying the burden of responsibility to maintain them because you rely upon them so yes funding those projects is a great idea the company that i work for now does that these are smaller projects that we directly fund financially, but also through engineering effort. And that's the secondary leg to this. If you are building technologies and solutions around open source and you're using them every day, then contribute with code, you know, help actually support these projects so that that single developer, that single contributor, those two or three contributors and developers have 
more developers to rely upon to review pull requests and triage bugs and what have you. The problem with all of this is very few projects actually have an advertised way to be supported financially. And that's the problem that we're bumping into. I was looking at this the other day. It's over 90% of projects have no means to contribute to with financial aid in any way whatsoever. And I can understand why. And that's as, as an individual contributor, the legal hoops you have to jump through in most jurisdictions are significant and more hassle. <laughs> then you're prepared to take on for the cup of coffee a month it buys you. Well, isn't a solution to that, if the company that's using your software is sufficiently large and depends on it to a sufficient extent, they should just hire you? That would be great as well. Yeah. I mean, and that does happen. There are there are examples of organizations out there. And again, I'm not going to name names. But there, I know of some significant frameworks where the lead developers behind those frameworks are hired by organizations that depend upon them, and they basically maintain and develop those capabilities internally and for the benefit of everyone else as well. Yeah, and it also helps that you've got this expert in your company, and right. even if it's only a couple of days a month that you throw other problems at them, they, they obviously must know what they're doing, right? And they can help you with other stuff, not just the thing they're working on. So it's kind of a double win. Yes, and that certainly helps ensure that there is, you know, technical feet on the ground. Well, I can tell we've got an awful lot more to say about this, but we've really got to wrap it up now. So I think we should continue in part two in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. And if you want to send in your feedback in the meantime, you can email show at linuxdowntime.com. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Martin. I've been Hayden. I've been Gary. See you later. <laughs>